Sits on heaven's mercy. 
Gracious Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you have made this promise to your people through the centuries. And we come today because of that promise. Help us to see that you are our everything, all that we need. And let us individually and corporately just keep placing our trust in you. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. I just want to remind you, uh, they look at the bulletin, there's a number of things there, upcoming events, activities, ministries. Um, just note that next Sunday is the last Sunday to collect the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. So we want to get those uh, in this week and bring it with you next Sunday as well. And there are a couple of inserts in your bulletin uh, about upcoming events, and one of them we're in the middle of, the prayer vigil. We have completed almost one week. And I'm hearing really positive reports. I know my own experience of being in the prayer room has been really positive. I want to say 
Thank you uh, to the people who have been doing the uh, security stuff in the middle of the night. It's a great sacrifice they make. And um, I hope that uh, you've had a chance to spend some time in the prayer room. If you have or if you haven't, uh, there are times available this week to sign up uh, today as well as throughout the week. And encourage you to do that and to see what God wants to do in your life, in my life, and in our lives together as the church. We're going to ask the ushers to come now and assist us as we give uh, back to God in the ways he's blessed us.
children of God, our Father invites us to come to Him, to offer our words of thanksgiving and adoration, and our prayers, things that concern us, the burdens that we feel. As we do that together this morning, if you'd like to come and join me at the altar rail as you offer your prayers, please come now. Father, it is an amazing privilege to know that we are not slaves to fear, but we are your children. Sometimes it's hard for us to truly grasp that. We ask today that you would help us to understand the depths, the truth of that reality. Father, today as we come to this moment of prayer as your children. We know that you hear us when we pray. And so we pour out our hearts to you. You know the struggles, the pain in our hearts, the, the difficulties in, in our minds. The, you see the ways in which we struggle physically, how we hurt and disappoint each other. Father, we pray that you will you will speak into our lives your healing truth. Give comfort to all who are grieving today and fill their minds and spirits with your presence, your peace. We pray for all who are wrestling with health concerns. And we thank this morning of Calvin and Laurel Butcher, and Warren Woolsey, Phil Muker, Ted Hopkins, Alice Brown, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Everett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and others who may be on our hearts and our minds today. Pour out your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we, as we move into the middle of this week and our nation celebrates Veterans Day, We are reminded of the many people who have sacrificed even their lives for our freedom. Father, our continual prayer is that you would so work in this world and we would respond to you in such a way that wars would end and peace would rule. We pray, Father, and give thanks to you for all who are at work to bring peace. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who do not know the freedom that we do. This morning, we think especially of the church in Indonesia, this area where churches have been burned and threatened. We pray for Pastor Erde and others of his congregation and other pastors and ask that you would protect them, that you would give them courage and strength. And Father, we pray that you would give them witness. And that the hearts of their opponents, those who are threatening them and doing violence to them, that they would see your love in our brothers and sisters and be changed through your grace. Father, we also pray for the Trudels and their ministry in Africa with Wycliffe. Continue to bless them as they work in a variety of ways in education and development and and leading people to relationship with you. May they know the anointing of your spirit in their ministry in every way. Father, as your children in this place, fill us with your spirit. As we move into the second week of our prayer vigil, speak deeply into our souls Transform us in the depths of our being. Cleanse us from sin. Free us from the guilt of our sin. Inspire us and equip us to live in faith, joy, truth, courage, and love. 
We pray all of this through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has left us the model for prayer which we aspire to live even as now we pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Acts chapter 13, 13, 1 through 3, and then 18, 24 to 28. Uh, After the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for children's church and junior church. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Chapter 18, 24 to 28. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. And taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he had arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Please stand as we sing together. Stir our love you more. Turn our attentions from this empty world. Help us count all things for your name lost, that we may know you more, and the glory of the cross. Come change our hearts. Come change our hearts. Come change our
Father, come change our hearts. Let your word speak deeply into every part of our being and change us. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I tend to be a fairly competitive person. I like to win, and I don't really like to lose. It's a, I'm pretty sure it's a family trait. Uh, it's been passed down. You know, I talk to some people, and when their family gets together, they play games, but it's, you know, they're all sort of like, whatever. That's not our family playing games. When we have big family vacations and we all get together, we play a lot of games and it gets intense. And we have a lot of fun doing it, but it gets intense. And uh, we, are, we are a family, not just our nucleus family, nuclear family here, but my wider family. We, we like to win and we don't like to lose and we're competitive. And that, that probably works pretty well in this culture in which we all live because we live in a pretty competitive culture. In our culture, it's often about who wins and who loses. I mean, most of our lives have been, have been shaped around that idea. Our whole, you know, most of our educational system is what grade did you get? And you get out of that system and it's how much money do you make? What's your position? Did you get first? You know, we, and it, it's a part of who we are as a culture, particularly in the West, but I don't think it's limited to that. But we, ha- we have this drive in our culture about what success means. And most of the time, success has something to do with winning and not losing. And we, we are trained from a young age to think about how we compare to other people. And it's my impression, as I've been in ministry now for about 30 years, that the church often follows that same pattern. The church also has a tendency to say it's about who wins and who loses. It's about comparing ourselves to to other people, to other churches. And often it's about numbers. And and there's a, I guess I would say there's there's a rightness and a wrongness to that. Because when you read the book of Acts, it's not as if they ignore numbers. In the end of the end of chapter two. Near the end of there, it talks about how Peter preached that day and 3,000 people came to faith. And you get to, you get to chapter um, 6, and, and you find that, that Peter is, or the, set aside these people to help with the widows. And at the end of that, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So they're not completely uh, away from the fact that we might count people and we might think about numbers. But what we have tended to do is to say the, the numbers are how we define success. Do you have more? Are you faster, bigger, better? 
And, and, he gets the, and the church culture becomes this culture of, this, of exactly the same way of valuing and judging success as outside of the church. And it can easily create, it doesn't have to, but it can easily create a spirit of competition and competitiveness and envy and jealousy about whatever we are doing versus whatever other people are doing. might be one of the reasons why one of my professors in college used to say to us that you might be able to sum up the history of the church with the motto, divide and conquer. Because we just keep saying, well, we'll just keep splitting off because we can do it better than they can and, and we can do it faster and we can do it better. But when I read the scriptures, something in me says... That how in the kingdom of God, success has to be viewed differently. And it's not as if we ignore quantitative data, because that can help us learn and understand and grow. But somewhere in the mix of what it means in the kingdom to be successful, what success, how we view success in the kingdom... When I read the scriptures, it tends to gravitate toward things that are a little harder to quantify. Which is probably one reason why we keep going back to the things we can quantify. Because it it makes us feel uncomfortable because we can't put our fingers quite on it. Because when you read the scriptures, it talks about things like faithfulness. And servanthood. And surrender. And truth. And sharing. And love. And compassion. And all of those things are characteristics that are pretty hard to measure. And we want things we can measure. And again, there is value in finding ways to measure things. Because we all need to step back sometimes and say, how are we doing? But maybe there are other ways to think about how we are doing. I mean, you read in, in, again in Acts chapter 2, right before, right, right after it talks about the numbers, we have this little paragraph that talks about what the design of the church is. After it just started, and it says that they all shared everything they had in common. And whatever people owned, they didn't really consider that they owned it. It was everyone's. What I, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. And it had this spirit of sharing And caring for each other. I don't think anyone would would be able to quantitatively look at Jesus' life and say that was successful. I mean, think about it. He did everything wrong. He did everything backwards. He's born to an obscure family... Instead of being born to the place of power, he is raised in an obscure place. He spends the first 30 or so years of his life working probably in a carpenter shop. And then he spends only three, three and a half years or so, it seems like, doing actual ministry and going out and doing what he really came to do. And while he does that, he tends to spend most of his time away from the centers of power... And when he goes to the places of power, instead of ingratiating himself to people who might be able to help him make a name for himself, those are the people he tends to offend. And the people he hangs out with are the outcasts and the people that nobody wants to be with. And he gathers around him 12 men who don't have power and influence. In many ways, they're they're not the greatest guys in the world to choose. And then he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and go through a mock trial and eventually crucified. And anyone who walked away from the cross that Friday, let me reword that, no one who walked away from the cross that Friday thought to themselves, now that's success. Until Sunday. And then the image changes. And you'll notice that Jesus on the cross, the last words he speaks, John 19 says, Jesus cries out, it 
is finished. In other words, Father, I have been successful. I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've completed it. It's different. And it ought to cause us to step back a second and say, are we really viewing success the way we should? Now, the hard part about this is that because we are ingrained with this competitive nature and this wanting to compare, and that just continues to be reinforced in our culture and often in the church, we, we all wrestle in some way or another with competitiveness, with envy, with jealousy. It's a part of the human condition. We all struggle with that, and we are not the first ones to do it. I was reading recently in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and in this passage, the beginning of this chapter, Paul writes these words. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. And then he says, you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I'm a follower of Apollos, aren't you acting like people of the world? I mean, this has been going on a long time. And Paul equates that struggle with jealousy to immaturity. And we get that. And we all wrestle with it in some way or another. We want recognition. We want to be better than they are. And that's how we often view success. I don't know about you, but I I have a love-hate relationship when I was in school with group projects. You know? I mean, I, I have a very fond feeling for group projects because it was in the middle of doing a group project that Cindy and I became good friends, and out of that, our romance blossomed. So I do have a soft spot in my heart for group projects. You may want to start signing up for a group project, you know, some of you. But at the same time, group projects can be some of the most maddening things in the world to do, right? Because if, if, you, if you tend to excel, then the whole time you're feeling like these other people are dragging me down. And I don't want my grade to be based on what they do. It feels very unfair. Now, if you're on the other side of that, if you're one of the people that tends to drag them down, you love group projects because you sit back and you say, they'll do it, right? You know, let's be honest, we've all been there. And, And group projects can be maddening for that very reason. But it struck me a few years ago that the kingdom of God is much more like a group project than not. Because when you're in a group project and somebody's not getting it, you stop and you help them because you know your grade is is contingent on them getting it. And they're part of the work. And that matters to you now. If it's simply me versus you versus you... Maybe you help them, maybe you don't. But in a group project, all that changes. And in the church, success is not I succeed and you're on your own. It's we succeed. My joy is your joy. Your joy is my joy. Your pain is my pain. My pain is your pain. That's the church. And that's a lot closer, I think, to the kingdom's idea of success than what we tend to think. So what does that look like? I think for one thing, we, could, we start thinking about celebrating the successes of other people even when it feels like they're being more blessed than we are. That's hard to do. 
It's one thing to celebrate other people's successes when we feel like we're being blessed. And we're good. And life is good for us. But when life isn't quite so good for us and we're wrestling and we're wondering, God, what's going on? And we watch other people that maybe in the back of our minds we're judging aren't as spiritual as we are, are being blessed, that's difficult. But in the kingdom, we somehow try to find a way to celebrate that. But it is hard. In this passage we read from uh, Acts 13, Luke says that there are these, these, he talks about these men in Antioch who are spiritual leaders and, and they do some awesome things and, and they are the spiritual elite there. And God looks at all of them, four of them, and says, I'm going to pick Paul and Barnabas for this special work I want them to do. And the other two guys are sitting left going, really? And yet by the time you get to the end of this, They are laying hands on them. They're praying for them. They're sending them out with joy. And and when Paul and Barnabas return, they can't wait to hear about what God has done through them. They can't wait to hear about the successes that Paul and Barnabas have had. That's the spirit of the kingdom. In chapter 18, here comes this new teacher onto the scene, Apollos. Paul has already preached and Priscilla and Aquila come into the picture, this couple, and Paul embraces them and he encourages them about their gifts and what they're doing. He wants them to be successful. He doesn't see them as a threat. And when Apollos comes on the scene, Priscilla and Aquila do the exact same thing with him. This guy seems to be gifted, a gifted teacher, has great knowledge of Jesus, and, and people are come to faith through his ministry. And instead of being jealous of that, they encourage him, they help him, they teach him. They do everything they can so that his ministry will be stronger and stronger, even if that means people follow them a little bit less. Because their mindset's about the kingdom, not just their little kingdom. There's a great story that comes out, a legend that comes out of the 4th century B.C. where these, these demons are trying to get this monk to sin. And he won't do it. And they've tried everything. And they go back to Satan. They say, we've tried everything we know to do. We can't get him to sin. Satan says, do this. Go to him and tell him his brother has just been appointed the bishop of Antioch. And see what he does. They're like, really? All right. So they go. They whisper that in his ear. And immediately he's filled with jealousy and envy. And sometimes that's a struggle for us. But in the kingdom, we celebrate. We celebrate everyone's success because we're all in this together. But take the circle a little bit wider. It's not just about our own spiritual lives, our own lives on this earth, but it's also about our ministries. Because that too can be a point of jealousy. And, and in the kingdom, we make the decision to celebrate the successes of other people's ministries in the church, even though they may be more blessed than we are. Maybe they get more recognition. Maybe they get more of the budget. Maybe they they have more people who are working with that ministry. And instead of being jealous about that in the kingdom, we celebrate that. And it doesn't mean that we, we give any less to the ministries that we're passionate about, We just don't see other people's ministries as competition. We're all in it together. We're all a part of the bigger kingdom picture. And we celebrate whatever is going on successfully in the kingdom. And we lament when there are not successes in the kingdom. You know, and in the church, it's so easy to become territorial about our things. You know, and, and we, we, we are passionate about it, we care about it, and we should, and that's good, and that's a gift of God, and God puts these things on our hearts, and we don't want to be any less passionate about the things that are important to us, because we all have different callings, and we all have different giftings, and we all see things differently. That's the beauty of the church, and as we talked a couple of weeks ago about diversity in the midst of being unified in Jesus, that is a gift. We don't all see things the same way. 
We reach so many more people and we, we see so many more things accomplished when, when we all have different passions. But instead of seeing other people's passions as competition, we just celebrate the fact that everyone is involved in doing the ministry of the church. And we leave it up to God who gets blessed seemingly and who doesn't. And we leave it up to God as to how other people's passions are tapped by the Holy Spirit. We just celebrate the fact that there are good things happening in the kingdom. We rejoice in that. Let's take the circle one, one step wider. We celebrate what God is doing in other churches even though it seems like they might be more blessed than our churches. Now I have to tell you, that's, this is the hardest one for me. Because quite frankly, a lot of how, how my ministry feels, how I perceive it and how I think other people perceive it is based on what we do as a church. What do our church numbers look like? What do we report? What do we not report? And there is, there is a great, just as there is a sense of self-worth and value in our spiritual lives and in the ministries we are connected with, the same thing is true of the church. And you know, when ministers get together, how's your church doing? And you want to be able to say the very best things possible. And it's tempting in those moments to exaggerate the truth or to play down the truth. And to listen to other people's stories and to feel envious and jealous that those things are happening for them and they're not happening for us. And sometimes what helps me is to realize that there are, I'm sure there are people looking at us and being, and feel envious and jealous that that's happening for us and not for them. And it brings me back to earth to realize everybody struggles with it. And I want to be able to celebrate the successes of other churches, other Wesleyan churches, all other churches. Because it's about the kingdom, not about our Little kingdom. You know, a, I read a great story of Fred Craddock who says that he went, after years of being away, he went back home for a week to visit one of his dear friends who he grew up with and still lived there. And, and on Sunday, they went to the church that they were raised in. And he was sitting there in the worship service looking around and he noticed they had some new stained glass windows in the church and they were beautiful but as he looked at them, they had little plaques around on the bottom of them with names of people who had, who in memory of and donated by, and he didn't recognize any of the names. And that surprised him because he grew up in that town. He was raised there. He went to high school there. It was strange. So after church, he said to his friend, love the windows. They're beautiful, but I don't get it. Who are all the names on there? Are these all new people that have come just, you know, because I've, I've kept touch. I, I, I know people. He said, no, funny story. He said, there was a church in St. Louis that ordered these windows from Italy, and when they arrived, they didn't fit their church what they, in the place they had. So they put an ad in a, in a paper and wanted to sell them cheap, and we thought, man, that's a good price. We'd love to have stained glass windows, so we bought them. And Craddock, he said, said to his friend, okay, that's great, but what about all these names of people that don't mean anything to your church? He said, yeah, you know, we thought about that and we batted that around and we decided let's leave them because in our church, maybe it's not such a bad idea to remember that there are Christians in other places of the world doing things for God too. That's pretty profound. And that's what we're called to. And so one of the new things that we're going to do starting next week, we're going to start praying for a different ministry in the church every week and we're going to start praying for a different church around us every week. And to ask God to celebrate their successes, to ask God to bless them in every way possible. And I do think praying about these things is important. 
There is something about coming to prayer and, and in our prayers celebrating what God is doing in other people's lives that begins to change us. And maybe we have to start, like we were talking last week about forgiveness. You know, we start out, Lord, we celebrate and we give you thanks for the good things that are happening for that person, that ministry, that church. Maybe our first prayer is, Lord, help me to want to be able to pray a word of thanksgiving for what you're doing for that person, that ministry, that church. But in prayer, God can change our hearts. I mean, this week I was down in the prayer room and I just spent some time staring at the poster down there that connects to this Sunday, today's subject. And, and it's, it's a whole bunch of people's hands clapping. And I just sat there thinking about that for probably five or ten minutes and just pondering the fact that it does feel different to be the one clapping for as to be the one being clapped for. But there can be a lot of joy in clapping for other people. Celebrating them. It's an expression of love. You know, I was reading a number of postings this morning about the, the children's uh, drama, this play this weekend at Fillmore, and uh, I think it was Shrek. And a number of our kids were in that. And it was, I was just thinking about back to when our kids did those kinds of things and were in stuff. And it was fun to be able to celebrate their successes and to be in the audience and to applaud and to clap and to cheer. And I didn't feel competition with my children. I was excited for them. And that's my prayer is that God will put that into our hearts. But I am convinced that that will happen only when we begin to embrace the reality that we don't have to compete with each other because we're all loved unconditionally by our Father in heaven. And I believe that is the core that changes us. Something about this spirit of rivalry and competition and jealousy and envy is rooted in our insecurities that we don't really believe, we're not quite sure that we are as valuable to God as other people are. And so we fight and we compete and we struggle. And all the while, God's love for us doesn't waver, doesn't change. See, something in us believes that we have to earn God's love. Maybe it's because that's sort of how our world works. When you think back to, to the story of the prodigal son. And, and in that story, the elder, the elder brother, is, there's a certain level of jealousy and envy that his younger brother, who squandered all this stuff, comes home and he gets a party thrown for him. But the real issue, I don't think, is jealousy. I think the real issue is that he's not totally convinced that his father loves him. And he believes that his relationship with his father is based on earning his father's love. And his father comes out and talks with him and he tries to help him see that that's not true. That he is loved whether he does things to earn it or not. That has no bearing on it, but he can't quite grasp it. And I'm not sure he wants to. Because there is something satisfying about believing that we have done enough to earn the love of other people. Because then it puts it into our, we control it. Something about that, something about that formula that says, we've earned it. And we often turn that around and say, they haven't earned it. And so God loves me more. But when it's just unconditional love, we sit back and say, well, why am I doing all this stuff? Because God loves us. See, one of the problems, I think, in the kingdom is that we have a tendency to think we are working for God's approval. When the truth is, God loves us and approves of us. And because of that, 
we go do work for the kingdom. And it's a completely different perspective. And somehow until we grasp that truth, it's going to be hard for us to cheer on other people, to celebrate the successes of others, even if they're seemingly being more blessed than we are. But once we grasp that truth, that our relationship with God is not some kind of contract in which as long as we do what we're supposed to, then God will do what we want him to. But that our relationship with God is based on his love for us. And because he loves us, as his children, then we go do the work of the kingdom. And if it works out the way we want it to, awesome. And when things don't go exactly as we want them to, it doesn't change God's love for us. And if other people are being blessed seemingly more than we are, it doesn't change God's love for us. Because God's love isn't based on what we do. It's based on who we are as his beloved children. My prayer is that that truth will continue to seep into our every fiber of our being so that as we do the work of the kingdom we go out with joy and grace and love and peace knowing that we are going out through the grace of Christ it changes everything Heavenly Father, give us a new vision of who we are as your children. And give us a new sense of what it means to be successful in the kingdom. Give us a bigger picture. Give us a wider picture. And fill us with the joy of who you are and of your loving grace. We pray this through Christ. Amen. as we sing together.
as beloved children of God. May you go forth in his grace and mercy and peace this day and every day.